Predator fans, before today's episode, I just wanted to give a sound quality heads up. This minute, unfortunately, recorded my audio over my webcam instead of the normal microphone I used to record my side of the conversation. Because of that, the sound quality on my end is quite a bit lower. Aaron's sound quality is probably his best yet. <laughs> Next week's episode will return to the normal sound quality. Stick around for minute four. Hello, Predator fans, Redheads, Hunter, Gatherers, no, Trophy Collectors, <laughs> we'll work on the greeting. Hunter Killers. <laughs> Hunter Killers. Welcome to Predator Minute, the podcast which breaks down the 1987 action sci-fi classic one minute at a time. My name is John. And I'm Aaron. And today we are breaking down Minute 4 of Predator. Minute 4 opens with the general descending some concrete stairs and ends with said general greeting Dutch with, well, not the manliest handshake ever. That comes next minute. (laughs) <laughs> it's the second manliest handshake ever. The second manliest handshake. I guess originally it was the manliest handshake ever, but then it was just quickly eclipsed. It didn't its record didn't last long. <laughs> Short-lived manliest handshake. Uh, in this credit, we're going to be talking a lot about the remainder of the opening credits, and then we'll talk a little bit about what we see happening in a minute. So any initial thoughts before we dive into the credits? I really like this movie, and I'm glad that we're watching it. <laughs> if you had asked me to do a minute-by-minute minute of The Little Mermaid, I would have been pretty disappointed. <laughs> you would have said, I'll uh, get right back to you, and then never, yeah. ever gotten right back to me uh, i don't think we're yeah, just not gonna do yeah it'd be interesting to hear eventually you know those top five or so movies that you would be willing to break down them at a time i have my own movies but those movies can be totally different than say you know your top five favorite movies it's a good point it's a good point okay we open with editor credits this movie is edited by john f link and mark Helfrich. John F. Link was nominated for an Oscar in 1988 for the next John McTiernan movie, Die Hard. He worked on a few other movies as editor. Commando, Die Hard, as I just mentioned, Roadhouse, Hard to Kill, Hand That Rocks the Cradle, Mighty Ducks 1 and 2, Three Musketeers, Steel, and then Mark Helfrich. Uh, one of the notes that jumped right out at me was Revenge of the Ninja. And he was responsible for editing because I had this poster up in my college bedroom. Yeah, you did. Uh, for yeah, a few years. Just <laughs> It's one of those weird things where someone bought me the poster, then here it comes back around all these years later. Ah, here we go. Here's the editor for Revenge of the Ninja. Also edited this movie. I assume that's what got him the job here. <laughs> It was either that or his time when he was the head coach of the Oregon Ducks. Oh, that's a different Mark Helfrich. Sorry. My mistake. My mistake. (laughs) Mark Helfrich. Helfrich? Helfrich. This editor also edited Rambo First Blood Part 2, which as a 1985 movie to me stands out as one of the big inspirations for Predator. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
just i mean the setting Along for sure commando and other movies the setting the covering of mud unless is the covering of mud in rambo first blood part two or is that yeah three? no that's it that's where so there's a scene where uh, he escapes from the torture room after they've been electrocuting him and he goes disappears into the jungle and so they all take off after him the uh, the russian soldiers along with their north vietnamese or i guess just vietnamese uh, counterparts at that time and then uh, there's this scene where he's up against this kind of really steep muddy kind of short cliff and uh you don't notice him you don't notice him and then the camera zooms up as he opens his eyes and so you just see his the whites of his eyes up against all the mud and then he steps out right. and then he uh, takes out the last soldier in line of the guys coming after him I'm glad you asked me about that that was yeah. a pretty <laughs> vivid kind of <laughs> memory i have of that movie oh yeah it makes sylvester stallone such like a scary good guy in that movie where you're just oh wow he is like this yeah. ultimate hunter in this movie all of a sudden exactly i gotta be honest i you know those guys were compared endlessly all throughout the 80s and 90s i was always a much bigger arnold fan he just seemed much more big physically imposing and he also seemed like like a much nicer right. kind of guy like when it, whenever he would smile to the camera i'd be like hey i'd like to go hang out with that guy that'd be fun Rambo just whenever you saw him was like oh that guy's kind of scary I should Sylvester Stallone is always looks like the kind of guy you'd want to just kind of let him let him be by himself right Sylvester Stallone seemed much more of a, a serious less comedic personality than Arnold who is always sure. equipping yeah one less charismatic in general right which is why Arnold you know had a successful somewhat successful political career and right. Stallone I think sort of has mostly kept out of the the major limelight right really just stuck to movies and now he's organizing his old buddies from the action days <laughs> and the expendables movies sure yeah all right with the uh Rambo tangent there just to state some more highlights from Mark Helfrich's editing career, Action Jackson, which we've talked about before, being a vehicle for Carl Weathers uh, in 1988. Stone Cold, Last Boy Scout, Nowhere to Run, Striking Distance, Showgirls, all three Rush Hour movies, Scary Movie, Red Dragon, X-Men 3, Season of the Witch, Tower Heist, Hercules, The One with the Rock, which I really liked, uh, and the latest Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which was a huge hit. Also with The Rock. Yeah, also with The Rock. Uh, lots of <clears throat> There are a lot of action movies in there, but there are also uh, some good crowd pleasers there by this editor. Um, and just to give some thoughts on the movie's editing, I feel like the editors really had to please a lot of different genres uh, with cutting the movie, where at some points the movie is full-on action, and others it's survival at other times, it's more of a horror or a slasher movie, and I think the editors do an awesome job of cutting it to fit the mood that is needed. And, and here in the beginning, we see the same thing, where they're just editing it to show us the arrival of the team, show us the setup of the mission. Definitely down to business in the, uh, in the first few minutes here. The next credit is production designer John Vallone, nominated for an Oscar for Best Art Direction for the Star Trek motion picture in 1980. Also worked on production design on 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, Brewster's Millions, Commando, Red Heat, Die Hard 2. Adventures of Ford Fairlane with what's the really dirty mouth comedian from the eighties, Andrew Dice Clay, Cliffhanger, Bad Boys, <laughs> and Firestarter too. And this movie is nothing without its production design, with all the different uh, jungle sets, the village towards the beginning of this movie that they raid, giving the characters enough space in the jungle, and also giving the jungle 
that claustrophobic feel that we talked about simply with the weather in the beginning of the second minute. Yeah, the behind the scenes information on this movie definitely reveals just how challenging a lot of the production design was, which we talked a little bit about before about all the different challenges of this movie. But the production design comes to mind just because they had two completely different jungle locations they shot in. Mm-hmm. One near Puerto Vallarta and one out near Palenque in the in the east in eastern Mexico. And there was all these stories about how hard it was for them to create exactly the jungle look they wanted. They didn't evidently just go out and shoot the jungle. They talk about this having all these leaves that they imported and wanted in these specific spots. They talk about right. bringing in water trucks to create mist and to uh, actually change the temperature so that the thermal image shots looked better. They talk about building trees, like including the, some of the big trees near the end of the movie that they're seen climbing on more. So it's like just a lot of work went in the production design, which is impressive to me, given that I didn't know that watch, certainly watching the movie over many, many years. It just kind of looks like jungle to me, but they definitely put a lot of thought into this, into making the making it look exactly the way they wanted it to look. I read similar articles where McTiernan would talk about the crew having to bring in bags of leaves to toss on the ground and, like you said, build the trees. Next credit up, director of photography, also known as the cinematographer, Donald McAlpine. He's been the cinematographer on movies for many, many years. He's known for collaborating with Boz Luhrmann. He was DP for 20 years before Predator. Like I said, still the cinematographer, still DPing movies. Uh, some of his highlights, some of his highlights, Down and Out in Beverly Hills, Parenthood, The Hard Way, and that's another one that stands out because that was, if I recall, our first R-rated movie in theaters. That was with Michael J. Fox and James Woods. That's right. Medicine Man, also directed by John McTiernan. Patriot Games, Mrs. Doubtfire, Clear and Present Danger, Romeo plus Juliet. That's one of those Boz Luhrmann movies. The Edge, Moulin Rouge, another Boz picture. The Time Machine, Hinger Management, Chronicles of Narnia, the first one. X-Men Origins Wolverine, Ender's Game, Ali's Wedding. And as far as his job goes, cinematography is all about lighting, using the right cameras to pick up shots. And this movie benefits from his expertise in lighting. We see a little bit here at the beginning with the simple use of lighting in the hut when they're first planning the mission. You see the their faces underlit when they're looking at the map. You see it in the next couple of minutes when they're in the chopper and you can only see by the uh, red interior lighting of the chopper. Uh, I think he does a good job of giving the daytime a claustrophobic feel just kind of like with this overcast lighting during the nighttime battles. In the third act of the movie, you are relying a lot on fire and explosions for sight, and that's well done too. McAlpine's oral history contribution is all about talking about the different cast and crew themselves, but also talking about how he had to fly in his own Australian crew to work because they were more uh, suited for the job of working with the cameras and working with lighting. Whereas when he first arrived in Mexico to work on the movie, he was working with a lot of Mexican crew who were just more schleppers, in his words. So they were just there really to move things around. They didn't really know the equipment names. They didn't know the setup. I thought that was really interesting. The writing credits come up next. We talked about John and Jim Thomas a bit as 
the executive producers, well, one only one of them was the executive producer. They didn't write a whole lot else. We talked about this in the previous minute. They wrote this. They also wrote Predator 2, Executive Decision, Mission to Mars, Behind Enemy Lines. But they're also nowadays just given credit since writing this movie. They're always given character credit for any kind of video game or graphic novel or movie. Uh, the story goes that these two brothers were on a California beach in the early 80s writing this movie. They name mythology Brothers Grimm and the novella Heart of Darkness as some of their inspirations. One thing I was surprised at uh, reading through the script for the first time not too long ago was how faithful the dialogue in the movie actually is to the script. Sort of the, the, the dialogue in the movie feels fairly informal, and so I was surprised to see just how closely it seemed to follow it. We talked a little bit about Shane Black and his writing contributions to the movie, and they obviously don't give him a writing credit here. Don't give him an acting credit at the beginning of the movie either. <laughs> nope. And I think in the words of Shane Black, the only thing he added was two dirty jokes. So right. maybe that's appropriate. And you had mentioned that Shane Black was not a fan of rewrites. He felt those are just a waste of time already. So he must have seen the script and really combined that with him just wanting to act in this movie. He didn't, did not add a lot to uh, the script itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, But the script itself, when you read over it, you'll notice the original name of the script was Hunter. But like you said, the movie stays fairly faithful to the script uh, in terms of spoken word and action. Uh, there are some allusions here and there to compare the soldiers and the predator in the script, but I feel like the movie does a great job of even thinning it out even more to not include those comparisons. And I talked about that in the previous minute about the two sides not being that different. The opening credits give three producer credits, Lawrence Gordon, Joel Silver, and John Davis. Lawrence Gordon also served as the president of Fox from 1984 to 1986, a longtime producer. He's produced other big hits such as The Warriors, 48 Hours, Brewster's Millions, Die Hard, Field of Dreams, Another 48 Hours, Predator 2, Die Hard 2, Rocketeer, Waterworld. I don't know if that fits into the big hit category. <laughs> Mystery Men, uh, the first two Tomb Raider movies, Hellboy 1 and 2, and he's the executive producer for the upcoming The Predator. Let's move on to the one who uh, certainly sounds like from the all the articles I read was a lot more hands-on. and that was, uh, that was Joel Silver. Joel Silver was brought in by Gordon for uh, being a producer on action movies previously. He's a long, long time producer, well known for his action movies and some other personal things. Uh, but he started two production companies, Silver Pictures and Dark Castle Entertainment. Silver Pictures was more for the action genre and Dark Castle Entertainment was more for the horror suspense genre. Fun fact about Joel Silver, he was considered the primary founder of Ultimate Frisbee in New Jersey in 1968. Uh, he also collects houses by Frank Lloyd Wright, um, and he's one of these prototypical producers in the 80s for being well known for having luxurious, expensive tastes where he would buy huge mansions and, and very expensive cars and keep trying to produce movies to keep up with his expensive tastes, which I thought was interesting if you read some articles about Joel Silver. He's still producing movies to this day. And then you mentioned hands-on. Well, there is one of Don McAlpine's quotes from the oral history about Joel Silver Don says, Joel was a totally hands-on producer. Endlessly, our director would defer to Joel about how much blood there would be. How gruesome should we make this? And Joel's answer was always, more blood! Um, 
<laughs> you, you, you definitely have an idea of Joel Silver being there, being really enthusiastic about the production, giving straightforward notes. Some other movies uh, in his resume for producing would be The Warriors. Again, another appearance of The Warriors. 48 Hours, Brewster's Millions, Weird Science, Commando, all four Lethal Weapon movies, Action Jackson. Uh, the first two diehards, Predator 2, Hudson Hawk, Last Boy Scout, Demolition Man, that Assassin's movie with Antonio Banderas and Sylvester Stallone, <laughs> Conspiracy Theory, the three Matrix movies, House on Haunted Hill, Romeo Must Die, Exit Wounds, Swordfish, Ghost Ship, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, V for Vendetta, Speed Racer, Sherlock Holmes 1 and 2, Book of Eli, The Losers, The Nice Guys, Suburbicon, a new Logan's Run, question mark. And what I noticed from that filmography is that he's worked with Shane Black as the writer and director for a couple of those movies, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Nice Guys. But The New Predator, I did not see Joel Silver as one of the upcoming producers, so I'm not sure if that will be the case. They probably have enough producers at this point. No, Joel Silver is not up there as a producer. But John Davis and Lawrence Gordon are. Uh, the last thing on Joel Silver is that anytime you're looking at production photos of Predator, one of the popular photos is Joel Silver leaning against a tree in the jungle, uh, chatting with John McTiernan, the director. Sure. Not, not only was he giving the straightforward notes, but he was also down there. I think that really makes Joel Silver... I don't know, more reputable as a producer in my eyes, someone who's actually there. The last producer credit, John Davis. He founded Davis Entertainment, another longtime producer. This was his first big role as producer. He was tasked by then-president Lawrence Gordon to start organizing uh, Predator. Uh, like Joel Silver, he has more than 100 producer credits to his name in the IMDb, including the upcoming The Predator and all of the Predator movies, which total six with the newest one coming out. Uh, but John Davis has produced a variety of genre movies, The Firm, two Grumpy Old Men movies, Waterworld Again, The Bomb, <laughs> Behind Enemy Lines, Paycheck, iRobot, Game Night, which just came out this last year, the upcoming iRobot 2, the upcoming Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and the upcoming movie based on the Jungle Cruise ride at Disney. Wait, what? The Jungle Cruise ride gets a movie? Exactly. Pirates of the Caribbean has a movie. Jungle Cruise will have a movie as well. I believe Jungle that's going Cruise. to star The Rock. Uh... <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. Can't wait to see some of those Predator influences there where <laughs> uh-huh. tour guides saying, just stick around. Disney <laughs> style. Yes. Yeah, but Disney style. Hey, stick around. <laughs> Okay. okay. Our last credit belongs to the director, John McTiernan. John McTiernan went to Juilliard and graduated from the AFI Conservatory with a Master of Fine Arts. In his commentaries, he speaks a lot about being a student of filmmaking. He talks a lot about integrating music into filmmaking. He talks a lot about when he was a student and studying film, a lot of the film he was studying was these foreign language movies, and a lot of times he would not hear the English translation. He would just watch it with the language he didn't understand. And that comes across very much in his movies, at least in my mind, it comes across a lot in this movie with the Spanish speaking 
in the hunt for Red October when they change up the language from Russian to English, and in The Thirteenth Warrior, where Antonio Banderas eventually just begins to understand uh, the crew that he is working with. Uh, so some, yeah. someone who works a lot, who really enjoys, I think, making movies that could stand alone as silent movies. Maybe not all of them, but definitely this one and definitely a couple other of his movies, um, where you don't have sure. to know exactly what the characters are saying, but how they're saying it emotes everything. And what you're seeing on screen really, really, truly tells you the story yeah and there's so many scenes in all those movies that you just quoted and i can think of Die Hard also where they're speaking german they're yeah. just as you say they don't they don't bother translating any of those lines uh directly for the for the audience well there's the, uh, one line in german they do translate <laughs> what is that shoot the glass Oh yes, <laughs> when, when Hans Gruber has to translate for us, <laughs> yes. But in general, they they don't always. And just as you say, they rely more on on the way they're saying it than not. And what's interesting is actually uh, in this movie that that'll we'll talk about that more in detail because it's kind of crucial to a couple scenes. The fact that the translation is actually left somewhat ambiguous. So it doesn't ever translate it. The Spanish that's heard in this movie directly, you are always hearing it secondhand uh, from other people who are translating it for you. And it's not at all clear that you can trust the translation. Right. They disagree in one scene about what Anna says, where that's right. I think Carl Weathers has to contradict what Pancho just translated from Anna, saying that's not what she said. So we have these, right? Uh, like you said, unreliable translator narrators who, you know, if, if we don't really speak the language fluently, then right, we're, we could just we could be just as lost as the rest of them. Well, what's interesting is in this movie, and we'll talk about this in the later scenes, but the online commentators, there's some disagreement also. Right, uh, right. If you read through all the messaging forums talking about what the best translation is for uh, for some of the some of the Spanish lines in this movie, found a couple of quotes relating to John McTiernan. His own quote about this movie, he said, "It combined elements you rarely find together: a classic hero story and a horror story, like the Norse myths, where heroes fight against supernatural beings. It also reminded me of the old war movies and comic books with men who are larger than life. It is, in essence, a battle of the titans." Um, his first movie was Nomads. That was Pierce Brosnan's first lead role in a film. And then his second movie was this. It was Predator. It was jumping right into this blockbuster of a movie, which was, from all the production notes, you can't tell, was brainstormed as a blockbuster itself, this movie. So that second step he took was into this movie that was meant to be a blockbuster, and it's lived on in action movie lore ever since. Speaking of action movie lore, his next movie was Die Hard. Some would argue the top action movie of all time, and that lots of action movies are just, are just copying the beats of that movie. It's one of my wife's favorite movies. Oh, really? Stacy loves Die Hard. I did not know that. You got it. <laughs> that's awesome. People would say Under Siege 2, that's just Die Hard on a train or Speed 2. Under that's... Siege 1 was, was Die Hard on a boat. There you go. Die Hard on a boat. Just like Speed 2 Cruise Control. Die Hard on a boat. The latest movie with The <laughs> Rock, Skyscraper. People argue, oh, that's just Die Hard in a building. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> John McTiernan would then direct Hunt for Red October. His next movie was another Sean Connery movie, Medicine Man. And then he directed Arnold once again in Last Action Hero, which in retrospect I've learned was panned 
heavily, hated by critics, but at the time I remember loving that movie and there are quite a few scenes in that movie I still go back to and I just really, really enjoy. The most of which is his Hamlet scene in the black and white where (laughs) he says to be or not to be and then Arnold lights the lighter to light a cigar and he says not to be and then the explosion goes on in the background. Uh, yep, lays waste to everyone. Yeah, that's. I agree. That would be a much more entertaining version of Hamlet. The uh, as the the main character in that movie is sort of imagining what what an entertaining version of Hamlet would be. And yeah, right. having Arnold in there instead of Kenneth Branagh or or Mel Gibson or something would be pretty awesome. When I, whenever I see that scene, I think to myself, I would watch a full movie of this. But then you watch the scene, and <laughs> that is the full movie. I mean, that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> He That's blows up the castle at the end. It is. It's done. <laughs> but McTiernan wasn't done. McTiernan was not done. He went on to film the third Die Hard, Die Hard with a Vengeance. That's actually my favorite Die Hard movie. Yeah, I really enjoy that as one. Blasphemous too. As blasphemous as that might as that might be, I, I like that one the most. I think what that movie does awesomely, kind of like in the Shane Black vein, is it's giving the hero a buddy to go on these adventures with, and to uh, fight these bad yeah. guys with. You know, you have Sam that, Jackson, yeah. who's who, who's so not <laughs> down for this stuff that's going down, but he, he has to be this reluctant hero, much like John McClane was in the first one. Sure. Uh, then he goes to direct 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas, which is a loose retelling of Beowulf. Which, as we saw before, he was thinking about when directing Predator, so this was his chance. 13th Warrior, more of a cult hit these days. It was not a critic's favorite. Yeah, it was another movie that I, 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 I enjoyed. I really liked it. But as you say, it wasn't, wasn't a big hit in theaters and the critics didn't much like it. 13th Warrior, one of the things that was a big problem with it was, I guess it was like in production for five years or something after they filmed it. So Whoa. it was just. <laughs> I think that was one of the things that definitely killed a lot of the promise of that movie. Yeah, I remember seeing 13th Warrior with our mom in theaters many years ago. And I definitely remember having like this kind of dark vibe that that movie gave off. Sure. Somewhat nihilistic. And I think when, in my opinion, the tale of Beowulf originally is pretty nihilistic itself. So I felt like looking back on the movie fit that tone, but definitely kind of a, a darker journey of a film, even compared to something like Predator. Mm-hmm. He then directed Pierce Brosnan again in The Thomas Crown Affair. Uh, I never saw that. It's one I'll definitely watch for research for this podcast to pick up on the different shots. It's a remake. Oh, it's a remake. Okay. Yeah, the original is much, much earlier, but they stuck very closely to the original and made it a very kind of suave movie. It's a good movie. Okay. It's definitely a departure from something like 13th Warrior and the Die Hard movies and Last Action Hero and Predator. Uh, And then John McTiernan kind of just went out with a a whimper here with Rollerball and Basic, (laughs) a couple of movies that were heavily, heavily panned. I did not see either movie. I remember having Rollerball on DVD and never, ever, ever opening it. <laughs> You're not missing anything. I don't anything. know why. Yeah, it was really disappointing. He's had such a great career. And in general, I mean, his movies are, are fantastic. But the last two, I wonder how much the quality of those suffered related to his own personal struggles. Right. From what I read about his legal troubles, which we'll talk about very briefly here in a minute, a lot of his legal troubles stemmed from being in production or while producing the movie Rollerball. It looks like he couldn't personally trust the people he was working with. They were not believing in the movie. And so he had people wiretapping uh, the producer of Rollerball to (laughs) 
basically listen to them bad-mouthing the movie and the production of the movie, which is obviously terrible, terrible choice by John McTiernan. What are you doing, buddy? Just, you know, if it's not working out, just move on to the next project and work your magic. Because after Rollerball, like I said, he directed Basic in 2003 and hasn't really directed anything since. And looking at that resume, you start in Nomads, you end in 2003 for a director and for a director of such prodigious talent to only be making movies for 17 years that to me that is quite the downfall it's quite the tragedy i feel when i was researching a lot of this movie was it's such a bummer that right he, he, he can't be making more movies he can't be recapturing that magic because yeah. after basic that's when um a lot of the legal troubles kicked in and he had to actually go serve a sentence he declared chapter 11 bankruptcy he was ordered by the court to sell his branch home uh, so he made some really bad, bad decisions, in my opinion, derailed his directing career, which, again, I'm super bummed about loving this movie and then really enjoying a lot of his other movies. Uh, the latest thing he directed was in 2017 for Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Wildlands video game. Uh, if you watch that short little two-minute teaser trailer for the game, it's this live-action scene of some bad guys playing cards in this decrepit building, and you see this laser pointer just kind of appear on some boxes or some stacks, and the laser pointer moving around, but the guys playing cards don't notice. Who does notice is this cat who's chasing around uh, this laser pointer, and eventually the laser pointer you see sets on the bad guys and takes them out in lightning quick succession. But just the way the scene is told with a little bit of comedy, a lot of suspense, the characters reacting, there are bits and pieces of his, of his techniques there. Another crazy tie-in right there to John McTiernan is Wildlands also later had a DLC, a downloadable content that allowed the player to hunt the predator in the woods, complete with the music, complete with the predator killing off the rest of the crew, the clicking sounds inspired by Peter Cullen's predator sounds, which I thought was a neat little tie-in. Some of the things we'll look for in this movie that John McTiernan talks a lot about in his commentaries and he uses in his movies would be the rack focus. I talked about this before where something is focused in the foreground, something's out of focus in the background, and then the focus shifts to focus on the background and then blur what was in the foreground. Panning a lot and tying scenes together with moving the camera right to focus on something and the very next edit is moving the camera to the left to focus on something else. We'll watch how he use zooms, dollying, and minimal editing, which he takes pride in in his commentaries about trying to have as few cuts as possible. And then I have a quote from McAlpine on McTiernan. It was fantastic working with John McTiernan at that time. He was very astute in keeping these characters very interesting as individuals and still progress with the story. I mean, we basically had nothing but the trees and the actors and the script to tell the story. It was quite remarkable how he made a really interesting film out of what was a very, very limited situation. And that's kind of like that adage of just using what you have around you and you're going to be much more creative than if you had all the tools in the world to work with. So I like the fact that the music keeps going. The introduction of the characters doesn't let up in the way that they're introducing them as being men of action. They're moving. They're looking very serious. I do like the uh, the completely unnecessary but kind of cool way that the Jeeps drive through the surf. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. <laughs> yeah, there's, I mean, it's completely unnecessary, but it's cool. 
cool. I like the fact that there's a lot of action happening at the same time. So there's soldiers getting on and off of helicopters. There's helicopters landing and taking off. All the rotors are spinning. There's smoke in the background. It's not a static environment. It's not like it's clear that the soldiers aren't coming into something that was just waiting for them to make all the action happen. That the action's already happening and they're just here to, to participate. Right. In media res. Right in the middle of the action. That's right. They're in the middle of operations here and they're going to continue those operations once this team leaves. I like in the uh, Jeep scene, there's a brief little moment where you look and uh, Sonny and uh, Poncho are in the rear Jeep and they're standing up. No idea why, but it looks but it looks cool. <laughs> it does look cool. <laughs> they do a short drive-by of one of the choppers. I think this that should be the Jet Ranger they're passing right there and they see the missile pods on either side of uh, the chopper right from the, the front. Again, kind of like this gun fetishizing, like, oh, look at these huge rocket launchers right there. Yeah, yeah there's definitely some, some fetishizing going on in this movie and this is just one part of it. It's, I mean, the whole movie really is kind of a big gun fetish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We'll talk a lot more yeah. about that as we go on, but that's uh, but one of the things I'll point out is John McTiernan in particular gave a quote where he talked about the fact that he saw the gun fetish as kind of a uh, as kind of an allegory to point out how powerful these men were supposed to appear with very large firearms and that were very effective against you know fighting uh, some of the guerrillas that we'll see later in the movie, but ultimately it. Uh, is pointed out very clearly in the movie that it's not what's going to actually win the battle against the Predator. Right. To win the battle, we see Arnold have to resort to much more primitive ways, much more low-tech ways. I like the fact that there's not a lot of talking in this movie. I've already mentioned that. (laughs) One of the things you see is there's like a lot of choreography happening in the scene that there's nothing said about it. So two of the Jeeps break off that have most of the crew, but then the Jeep with Arnold is the one that actually pulls up to the little building where clearly they're serving as a command post where the uh, the general and the mysterious stranger, his old CIA buddy, are waiting. Right, right. That simple choreography of letting the, the actions tell the story versus saying, you guys hop in those Jeeps, we'll meet back in however many hours. You pointed out to me in a note that they edited out a line that was in the script mm-hmm. where the general was talking to Dylan. I'm very glad they edited that out. Yeah. <laughs> Completely unnecessary. In fact, it, it, the, the less dialogue, the better in this movie. I completely agree. We don't hear our first dialogue until the end of this minute. We're just nearing the end of minute four, and so that means about three minutes and 50 seconds. The first the first three minutes and 50 seconds of this movie is dedicated to showing us the setup of both teams arri- arriving. We see the Predator arriving via ship in the first minute, and these last couple of minutes we see Dutch and his team arriving, but no words, no exchanges. Instead, our first exchange is right after the director credits, or right after the final credit, when Dutch shakes hands with the general. The general says, you're looking good, Dutch. And Dutch says, it's been a long time, general. Those are our very first lines of dialogue. Clearly, it's been some time since these two characters have met. I can't imagine the circumstance. It's not told to us clearly, so we don't know if this was, if there was a previous mission where Dutch was serving under the general in some kind of military capacity, or... They're probably golf buddies, is probably the right. deal. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so funny seeing you out here. <laughs> yeah, no, obviously they had been in some military operation in the past together. Although, honestly, I think, I honestly, if I were directing this movie, I probably wouldn't have had this dialogue in there either. Pointless. I, don't know, I, I think it helps because the general's really pointing out just how good looking Arnold is. Like, in case you didn't know as an audience member, like, here comes Arnold out of the shadows. He really fell off the wagon. He's not been taking care of himself at all. 
But Arnold arrives, his face lights up as he comes into the light. Great cinematography right off the bat. Arnold walking right up with action happening in the background of the camp, still going through its operations. Right? And then he shakes hands with the general. I like that. That's uh, another obvious point that they're trying to make over and over in this movie is that these are not ordinary soldiers. No salutes. Right, no salutes. Just a, just a nice handshake, nice manly, manly handshake. Probably the manliest we'll see in this movie. Um, <laughs> unless there's another handshake later. I don't, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Hey, I've got a speculative question for you. Yeah. What do you think is these soldiers' kind of designation? Do you think they are mercenaries? Do you think they're part of a regular army unit? Are they special forces? What do you think about them? I have my theories, but I'd be curious to hear what you think. Sure. I don't really know anything about military yet. Planning on learning a lot more. <laughs> so uh, I definitely have to consult, you know, some of our family members who have been in the military. Sure. But the way they come off is former soldiers who just work really well together and Arnold is their boss and he pays them for doing this kind of wet work. Um, so I don't know what the designation would be. Well, that sounds like what you're saying is that they're mercenaries. Oh, yeah. I, I completely think they're mercenaries. Just the way they carry themselves is much more as like a job than some kind of duty that they're fulfilling for their country. At no point, even though the general sets this up as this kind of diplomatic rescue mission um, to save face that as Americans, none of that kind of patriotism or anything like that comes off in this movie. It's, sure. It's purely a, a job for them, in my opinion. What's your theory? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. It's sort of interesting the way they do that. But uh, I would also say there's several scenes in the movie where they keep talking about how Arnold's character is under orders. So there's a scene where they have him and Carl Weathers have this disagreement about whether they're going to take prisoners. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he says, you're under orders, Major. And so you sort of get the feeling that maybe he is still uh, part of the part of the army apparatus. But then again, presumably a member of the military could order around a private contractor if they if they wanted to also. So it's not clear. And I think there's arguments to be made in a variety of ways. But I think you absolutely nailed it, that the way they conduct themselves is certainly more like mercenaries than it is like a soldier's part of a regular unit. We don't have to see money exchange or anything like that to be given that impression clearly if, if we're picking up from their dialogue and just the way they carry themselves and how they spit tobacco in helicopters and they shake hands instead <laughs> of saluting <laughs> yeah uh, i'm definitely seeing it much more as just a job just another job and you know some foobar part of the world <laughs> Did you want to talk about the Jeeps at all? You, you mentioned the Jeep research. Oh, yeah. In case people are particularly interested in the uh, some of the finer details of the scene, went to the Internet Movie Car Database, not to be confused with the Internet Movie Firearm Database, or just the plain old Internet Movie Database. <laughs> or literally the plain database. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the Internet Movie Car Database is website where they profile the different vehicles that are used in different movies and so they've got an article on predator which is a movie you don't typically associate with a lot of motor vehicles no Uh, there's some disagreement in the discussion about this movie about exactly what the vehicle is but the the people that have posted there are seem to be in agreement that this is an old amc jeep cj5 is the one that arnold's riding in and then the two that are behind it are jeep cj7s both of which are 
civilian versions of vehicles that were originally designed for military use. So in particular, they most closely resembled the, the old M38A1, which was a 1950s model of military transport vehicles used a, a lot in the Korean War. And there's some disagreement about which year it represents, but they seem to be agreed, uh, these people that know a lot more about these vehicles than I do, that this is uh, CJ5 and CJ7. I think that's, I don't know if that's ironic. I don't know what that is, but it's, it's just funny to me that this vehicle originally was developed for the military, was adapted by car companies for civilian consumption, and then they use one of those civilian models as a military stand-in, as opposed to using the actual military vehicles. But maybe it's like you said earlier with the helicopters, how the military is quite protective of its own vehicles for use in movies. You're absolutely right. Uh, there's another wheeled vehicle later in this uh, movie. Do you remember uh, where that is? I actually had forgotten about it until I went to this website. Yes, I do. It's it's the one where he picks up the Jeep, which is acting as a generator. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He disconnects it from the actual battery yeah. that's generating power for the I camp. Read, and... I read a funny comment online. It said, literally, a pickup truck. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. That's right. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank God there's no quip in there like, oh, look what I found, a pickup truck. I'm going to pick it up. Well, it's funny you talk about the quips. The uh, If you go to really any of these websites that have a messaging board related to this movie, invariably every single one of these websites, like half the comments are just people throwing out these memorable quotes. And the internet movie car database is no exception. There's one, <laughs> <laughs> the first comment is, get to the chopper. <laughs> Has nothing to do with cars. It's just people. Oh no, not People love the one-liners from this movie. I, I agree. Anytime I mention that I'm doing this podcast to somebody, they always snap back with some one-liner from the movie, right? Like, "I ain't got time to bleed," something like that. And That's right. Just, just makes you laugh. Like that. That this movie can be in the consciousness 31 years after its its making, and it still holds up. I feel like in terms of the action, but also in the greatness of its few lines. There's a one thing I completely forgot to mention. I I wanted to say this earlier about uh, John McTiernan. So you know Arnold wrote an autobiography called Total Recall, of course, mm. and. Of course. In his book, he says that he was a big part of the decision to hire John McTiernan. And he said one of the reasons why he gave his support was because of the movie Nomads. And he said he was really impressed that he was able to create a very uh, effective tone, even though the movie itself might have been lacking in a lot of other ways with a very small budget. It being the first movie he directed, it is one of those I mean to watch and take some notes on. Uh, I was just watching Hunt for Red October last night. Just had that up while I was editing a previous minute, uh, just looking for things uh, that you know I noticed that match up to this movie. So I'll, I'll likely talk about that sure. later on. You know that's, uh, speaking of family members mm-hmm. in the military, that's, that's uh, Drew's favorite movie. Hunt for Red October. That's what he told me. Wow, awesome. Awesome. Can't wait to have him on and we can talk about what he likes there. We <laughs> well, it's not surprising. Drew was in the Navy. Right. So movie primarily focused on naval weapons and naval warfare he would be really interested in. And it's the only movie that I'm aware of that features the plane that he spent the majority of his career working around, which is the P-3 Orion. Is that one of the like telecommunications planes, like an AWACS? Uh, the one that he worked on, yeah, was, I guess, the EP-3 variant. But 
uh, in the movie, it's actually just the plain old P3. And it's just got this brief scene where it's uh, Alec Baldwin's character is riding on it. And it's dropping sonar buoys into the ocean looking for the right. red october and uh it's got who's it's got this comedic actor as uh, the co-pilot and uh and he's talking to alec baldwin and he's telling him about all the rough rides he's had and he says you think this is rough you should have seen the rough one we were in last month and he's like i puked all over the instrument panel the co-pilot just puked on his shoes couldn't <laughs> see anything and he's like you want some chips or something like that? He offered him something to eat right after he's done telling him. It's meant to be a brief moment of, of comic relief. I honestly believe that might be the reason why Drew loves that movie so much is because it's got his plane in it. Yeah, I remember just watching that scene last night with the subtitles on. A book, fittingly enough, coincidentally enough, just came out in June of 2018, so a couple of months ago, called John McTiernan, The Rise and Fall of an Action Movie Icon. Unfortunately, because it just came out, it's still at that brand new price of 30 plus dollars. But that would be interesting to <laughs> look into that and just read about, yeah, you know. We are a low budget podcast, much like yeah, John McTiernan's yeah. early movies. <laughs> Maybe if like we John become the, the powerhouse that he has, we'll be able to afford some uh, <laughs> some hard copies. <laughs> yeah. Until then, we're stuck in the paperback section. Yeah, I, I checked the library. It's not available at the library yet. I don't know if it will be. The reviews, all five-star reviews, all three of them are five stars. So I look forward to perusing that book and learning about his techniques more and his background with this movie. Uh, I made a note that we see a motif started with the general in the last minute looking through the blinds and lowering the blinds as he's essentially watching the team arrive in the chopper. We see that motif of people watching each other with uh, the jeeps rolling across the beach. We see the team being watched from across across the beach by presumably some locals, some children, some, I don't know, maybe some male adults standing there just watching someone in fatigues walking with a weapon. Again, just kind of touching on that motif of, of being watched, and that motif will go throughout the movie with uh, the characters watching the gorilla camp, and then later on the predator watching the team and hunting the team. That's a good point. I don't think I have anything else. I feel like we've cleaned this scene pretty darn well. What do you think? No. Nope. Alright, so like I said, we're going to in this minute with the manliest handshake we've seen so far in a movie, I am just so stoked to <laughs> continue on and, and we are all done talking credits. So from here on out, it is all about just what we're seeing on the screen. We can really focus in on the interactions of the characters. We can focus in on the sets. We can focus in on my new found favorite, which is the camera work itself and the lighting. Um, anything that you're excited about talking about, particularly in the upcoming minutes? <laughs> Mostly uh, big muscles. All right. Big, oily muscles. That's right. <laughs> Pumped. <laughs> just to make sure you don't get the wrong idea what I mean is the big manly oily muscles the men that are all don't want you to think there's something weird going on <laughs> yep <laughs> not that there's anything wrong with any of that I just nope nothing. Hey, 2018 man 2018 nothing wrong with that's that right. at all that's right <laughs> Uh, and with that, we're going to bring today's episode of Predator Minute to a close. So for Predator Minute, I have been John. 
And this has been Aaron. And until next time, I ain't got time to bleed. Our theme music is provided by Chaosware. Predator Minute can be found on the following podcatcher services iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Podcast Republic, with more to come. Predator Minute is hosted on SoundCloud at Predator Minute Podcast. Predator Minute has a social media presence on Twitter and Facebook at Predator Minute. If you have questions or comments, please email us at PredatorMinute at gmail.com. Predator Minute.